Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. We've, for the next four weeks, including today, we'll be operating under the the lid of a the cover of a four different messages on back to basics and i've been assigned for today the subject of and it's as basic as you can get i suppose it's entitled what does it mean to be a christian now before i get started on that i should let you know that what I have, if you notice on your bulletins in the sermon outline, there are some guidelines that I use to establish the parameters of what we're going to talk about. In capital letters, it says, according to the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate people who have written commentaries. That doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the great church fathers. Many of them, if I named them, you wouldn't know other than maybe Augustine. I appreciate those people. I've read them all. But I think that we can only have agreement if we have only one source of authority. And that has to be the New Testament. We are a New Testament church. And so I have a great appreciation for the, the reformers. A lot of churches refer to themselves as being reformed churches. And I appreciate the fact that, that Luther's life was on the line, Calvin's life was on the line, when they were calling for the reformation of the Catholic Church to get rid of some of the things that were obviously not Christian and certainly not biblical. So it's important that you understand that I'm saying where I'm coming from this morning and we will be coming from for the next four weeks is we only have one source of authority. Within the Catholic Church, you may or may not know this, within the Catholic Church, one of the reasons they had so much difficulty is that they have actually five sources of authority. They have their Bible, just like everybody else. Their own translation, the only difference really is that they include the Apocrypha, which is kind of questionable history between Malachi and Matthew. They also have church dogma, which is their doctrine. They have church law because they have their own legal system. They have their own court system. They have, of course, as you know, they have tradition. And then, if in those four areas, if there is a conflict, then the Pope is speaking what's called ex cathedra as the head of the church, determines what they're going to do. But all four of these are considered authorities with the Pope being the final authority. And so the Reformation came along and said, you know, we, 
that just doesn't work because there are times when the papacy has chosen something totally different from the Bible. They've created a thing uh, after death. If you're not good enough, why you don't go to heaven. You're a Christian, but you don't get to go to heaven. You go to purgatory where you will be purged or cleansed so that you're good enough for heaven. Actually, it, it wasn't a doctrinal thing. It was a thing to raise money because the way you get people out of purgatory, you write checks, light candles, anyway. And, and they own the candle companies. So it is, it is essentially a money-making thing. And so what, what we're attempting to do here is to say we're, we appreciate those people, but see, they didn't want to just have a New Testament church. They wanted to reform the Catholic church. That's the reason it's called the Reformation Movement. In the early part of the United States, probably the most influential group that started was called the Stone Campbell Movement. And these, both Stone, uh, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell were Presbyterians who had been extremely well-educated. And uh, they led a movement to just get back to the Bible, and I was strongly influenced by that, both in my education and in my rearing in my home church. And I still am a strong believer in the fact that if there's ever going to be any unity in the body of Christ, that it'll only come when we recognize only one source of authority, and that just has to be the Bible, nothing else. Their creeds were, were really helpful at one time because most of the people in the early church and up through in Bracken County, when my, Kentucky, when my mother graduated from high school, over 70% of the people, and she was born in 1906, she graduated when she was 18, so you can do the numbers. So in the early, in the early mid-20s, 70% of the people in Bracken County, Kentucky, could not read and write. And that's one of the reasons she chose to be a teacher. And so when you went to church, Many of the churches, to help people know what they believed once they had become a Christian, they taught them mostly the Apostles' Creed. There's a whole book called The Creeds of Christendom, Athanasian Creed. There's a whole smear of them. Don't need to get into that. One that's most often quoted and you would know the best would be the Apostles' Creed, but the Apostles didn't write it. It was written much later after the Apostles died. Uh, but it contained the teachings of the apostles, they said, and so it was called the Apostles' Creed. I don't think we need any of that anymore because everybody sitting here can read and write. And we, because of archaeology and some other things, we're better equipped to interpret the New Testament today than we've ever been before. We have the full Greek test, text. We have the full texts that were both in Hebrew and then in 200 B.C. were translated into Greek. We have those texts, not the originals, but we do have pieces of them. And so the Bible is the only one that we can say, this is the Word of God, and is totally without error when it was originally written. There have been some problems in translation through the years. We know that. But the question is, 
What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian, we want to, we want to make that really clear. We start off with one source of authority in, de, in reaching the conclusion of what does it mean to be a Christian. So let's look at the starting point on your outline. And the starting point there, it, it will say, it will mention a text from the sixth verse of the eleventh chapter of Hebrews, which simply says, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's the starting point. Faith means confidence in. We have confidence both in God and what He says. And the Bible is what He has said. And faith is never what we come up with. Faith is always a response to what God has already done. Having seen what he has done, and especially when he sent his own son to the cross, we have confidence in the fact that he loves us and wants to see us saved. Now, we need to make some differentiations here and some things that a lot of people don't often think about, but I think are really, really important. The kingdom of God existed before creation. The kingdom of God is eternal. It has always existed. And, the, and, and Jesus made it clear in, when his disciples came to him and asked him, how should we pray, you know, our Father, which art in heaven, be thine, thy kingdom come, where is it? In heaven, as it is, bring it to earth. Bring the principles of the kingdom of God here to earth. Because we now, when you become a Christian, you have dual citizenship. You're a citizen of this United States of America. Well, a couple of you aren't. Patrick and Eddie aren't, but, you know, there's hope for them. You have citizenship here on earth, and when you're born again, you're born not into a church. You're not born into a nation. You're born into God's kingdom. That's where you... So now you have citizenship in the kingdom of God as well as here on earth. And the kingdom of God is eternal. That's why Jesus said, when you're born again, you have eternal life. Because you're born into his eternal kingdom. Now, you need to understand that Christians did not exist... Before the book of Acts, what is recorded in the book of Acts. I personally divide, there are other people who don't agree with me, but let's hope they come around. That's supposed to be funny. I divide the, the Bible up this way. There's the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, the ministry of Christ, which superseded anything and everything. And then when he went to heaven, there's the church age. Now, when Jesus was, and I've sat there a buku times, and we may do it again if there's enough people interested. You, can't go, you don't want to go to Israel as a group unless you have at least 30 people in the bunch because that way we get our own bus. Otherwise, they stick you with a bunch of Presbyterians from Timbuktu. And, and, that's, and you can't do a lot of teaching that way. 
So I've sat at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was the, a city there eons ago called Caesarea Philippi. And it was there that Jesus was sitting with his apostles. And he asked him a question, who do you guys say I am? And they said, ah, we think maybe you're John the Baptist, you know, or Jeremiah, or, or, or one of, ah, he said, who do you say that I am? Quit speculating. And Peter, the spokesman, said, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, means all the same thing. And Jesus responded and said, Blessed art you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he goes on and say, And upon the statement that you made that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. So he, So listen to the word that he used in future tense. I will build my church. It, hadn't, it didn't exist up until then. You had Israel, the ministry of Christ, and then you had the church age. And both Israel and the church are not equal to the kingdom of God. Israel was always a mixed multitude. That's the reason they were always fussing and feuding and fighting. Church has always been a mixed multitude. There are people here today who will go to heaven, and there's some here who may, who may not. I get excited about that. It's always been a mixed multitude, but the kingdom of God is not. And both Israel in the Old Testament was the mechanism through which people were to come to the kingdom. And in the New Testament era, in the ministry of Christ, he sent you to Hades, to paradise, to wait until after the resurrection. And those he forgave entered the kingdom of God with him when he went into heaven. And then there's the church age, and that's today. And all of us generally believe that Christians are those who are baptized believers in Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sins and they're baptized believers. In Jesus. All denominations that I know of agree on that. Now they may fuss on about baptism. But initially there was no fuss. Initially there was no fuss. Initially, because they used Greek language primarily all over that Mediterranean area, and the Greek word for baptism means to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. That's all it can mean. Now, we know in church history when it came along that they actually poured water on some old guy that had gotten a high position in the church without ever being baptized. He was too sick to sick under the water, so they poured some water on him and hoped that did it. You might as well have dry cleaned him. Because that's not baptism. They, the church uses the term all the time, but there's a totally different term for sprinkling than there is for baptizing. And if you just use the New Testament, you know that I'm telling you the truth. Because, and you'll recognize the difference. The word baptizo in the Greek form means to dip, plunge, or to immerse. It, if a woman was washing dishes and she took a dirty dish and pushed it under the water and scrubbed it, it was a common term. She baptized that dish and then took it up and put it away. Or it was commonly used for dyeing clothing. 
if you t put the dye in a vat and you took the, the, the material that you wanted to be purple or whatever, because as one of them in Scripture did, and you pushed that down in the water and, and the dye and hold it there, you would say that you were baptizing it. It was not a religious term. It was a term everybody used in the Greek language. And so the New Testament church meant, in the New Testament, it always meant to dip, plunge, or to immerse. That's why we only dip them. And I like to quote Chuck Smith from, the, from Calvary Chapel, the founder of Calvary Chapel, who used to say, you've been gypped if you ain't been dipped. That's a little humor. Come on now, just lighten up a little bit here. You know. Now then, even church roles did not exist in the New Testament. There's no such thing in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. And it has kind of an auspicious beginning because we know how it started from studying church history. Early church met together in people's houses. They all sat around the table. They all knew one another. If a, if a stranger came in, they'd do what Andrew did with Daryl. They'd introduce him around and da-da-da. He'd tell his story and, you know, they all knew each other. But as the church began to grow and they finally built buildings and so on and so forth and the crowds got bigger and they, everybody didn't know everybody and the priests, and they developed priests instead of just preachers and teachers, the priests started telling people what they ought to do and they wouldn't do it. And so what he did was he made a list of all who were to receive communion, and they no longer distributed around the table as they once had done, but he took control of it. He had the bread, and he had the wine, and he refused to give it to people who would not do what he told them to do. That was called excommunication, excommunication, withholding communion from those who would not do as he told them. I've actually served communion in an Episcopal church, and, and, you know, they'd come up, and there was a, years ago, they were there, and, and it's a story, I don't have time to go into it, but one of these days when we got additional time, I'll tell you a funny story about what took place down at First Methodist Church here in town on, uh, on a, uh, Ash Wednesday. So anyway, what really happened, what really is needed, according to this 47th verse of the second chapter of the book of Acts when the church finally started. <coughs> In the 42nd, you know, Peter preached his sermon. The people said, what must, so what do you want us to do? He said, repent and be baptized everyone in your name of Jesus Christ. And they continued steadfastly in apostles, talking, fellowship, breaking bread and prayer, blah, 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 blah. And then it goes, and it said that there were thousands of people who were uh, baptized. And then it goes on to say, and the Lord added to their number daily, such as should be saved. The role that you want your name on is one that God keeps. You're in like Flynn then, because that gives you some assurance of salvation. And I'm going to tell you something. Everybody sitting here, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, ought to know beyond all reasonable doubt that you're going to go to heaven when you die. You say, well, but I sin. Well, Dick Tracy. What do you think grace is for? Because we're all going to hell on a skateboard without, without grace anyway. And the beauty of it is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been born into his kingdom, his grace is greater than your sin. Amen? Amen. So that gives you some assurance of salvation so you can give your attention to living a life that pleases our Heavenly Father. 
Now, early on, Christians weren't called Christians. They had another term that was used. If you look carefully in the 24th chapter of the book of Acts, in the two different places, verses 14 and I think verse 22, it simply says the same thing twice, that the followers of Jesus were called the followers of the way. Followers of the way. For what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by me. And so they started calling themselves the followers of the way. And the way there is another word for highway. They call their highways ways. We call them highways because we elevate them. You don't need to hear that. And now, and then if you go to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, verse 26, it will say, and the followers of the way were first called Christians at Antioch. That's a city up north of Jerusalem, a couple hundred miles or less, maybe. And the word Christian, grammatically, has an I-A-N ending on it. Christ with an I-A-N ending. And, and grammatically, that's the same as putting an apostrophe S, which indicates ownership. That's the reason our church is called, a, it's called the Christ's Ownership Community Church. Same as, same as the word Christian. And they were not called that initially. They were called that later on in a town called Antioch, and it caught on. So let's move on and, and ask this question. Now that you are a Christian, you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, now what? Now this is where the church has had some real problems. Not intentionally, but we became so focused on winning converts that we ceased to take care of them and turn them into disciples. Which means learners. And the result is we have filled buildings as the the, 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 church, the church growth people used to say, in order to build a great church, you have, you have to have butts in the, in the seat and bucks in the bucket. That's all right if your total emphasis is on evangelism. But folks, the New Testament doesn't put all the emphasis on baptism, on, on, on uh, conversion. In fact... Church buildings were not built for revivals. Church buildings were built as a place for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ of taking converts and turning them into disciples or learners. That's what the church was for. And then later on, the revival movement came and kind of edged all that out of the way. The New Testament says, now, here's what I'm advocating that we do better, that we do better than we've done before. What we did before wasn't wrong. It was just insufficient to turn out a product that by the very fact that you lived your life on a daily basis was a recommendation who Jesus is. And that's where we should be headed. We should help you grow and mature to the place in your faith, where that just by the life that you live on a daily basis, it is a recommendation to your neighbor, to your friends, to your co-workers of who Jesus is. 
And that's going to be our objective here at Christ Community Church from now on and in the hopes that we can stop losing 7 out of 10 of our kids when they go to college. So I'm saying part of the guidelines that we want to do, once you have become a Christian, one of the things that you ought to do is to be determined to please God. Now, why would I say that? Is because that's what Jesus did. If you go back into the book of, um, uh, of John, in the Gospel of John, and I think it's the 8th chapter, in fact, I know it is, in verse 29, it says this, The one who sent me is with me. This is Jesus talking. It's in red letters. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. This is the one who lived without sin. Jesus was tempted in every way like you and me, but he was without sin. And his goal in life, his purpose for living, was to please his father. When I was a kid growing up, as compared to my middle brother, I was known as a, one of those good kids. Not because I was uh, super religious or anything. Uh, I, I went to church and did all that kind of stuff. But the primary reason why I didn't drink why I didn't do a lot of things that some of them got into trouble for. A good friend of mine, a drunk, got killed. Uh, Wendell Workman, he'd already graduated a year before me, and, and he had a, a wonderful contract to play baseball with the Chicago Cubs. He was drinking one night, had a wreck, broke his left arm. He was a left-handed pitcher. And I saw early on. But the reason that I behaved myself fairly well and that's as good as I can get, to, to be honest, fairly well, is because I so respected my dad that I didn't want to do anything that would cause him embarrassment or heartache. There were three of us boys, and we held that old man in such esteem. And I never wanted to have to come home and apologize to my dad. And so my behavior was fairly exemplary, not because of the religious element, but because I really love my dad. Now then, why can't we take that same principle and say, now that I have been born into the kingdom of God where Jesus is the king, why can't I... Why can't I ask you, uh, for you and for myself, to make it a goal in life for us to make an effort to please our Heavenly Father? Jesus did, so I think we should too. When you go over into the book of Romans, the, 15, the, uh, uh, the 15th chapter, in verse 3, It simply says this, For even Jesus did not please himself. He, didn't, he wasn't selfish. His goal in life was to please his heavenly Father. I hope you will join me in making a commitment and saying that from now on, every action, everything that we do in life will take into consideration how does that affect the kingdom of God and how does that reflect on our Father. When you look at verses 1 and 2 of that 15th chapter of Romans, it goes this way. 
We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Pleasing our Heavenly Father is not necessarily an easy way to go because most of the time it means we're swimming upstream against the tide of our own culture. But if we're going to claim citizenship in the kingdom of God, we better have supreme loyalty to the king of that kingdom, even Jesus himself. I think the second thing that I would suggest is that we make an honest effort to learn God's priorities. What are they? Well, Jesus said it was this. He said in the sixth chapter of, of Matthew, verse 33, that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he said, if you'll do that, I'll take care of all this other stuff you worry about all the time. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, blah, blah, blah. And I think the same thing should be, I think the same thing probably should occupy the time that we spend in the pulpit. It's important to tell people how to have a good marriage and how to handle their money and all that other stuff. That's but if you, and I've thought about this for myself, if I had just a short time to live and had the opportunity to preach in that period of time, let's say it's six months, what would I preach? Well, actually, we know what the Apostle Paul would preach because the New Testament tells us. He, when he was in Rome in jail, since he was a Roman citizen, they didn't throw him in, the, in some of the really awful jails. They let him rent a house and pay for it, and they would assign a soldier to be chained to him in his own house. <laughs> I kind of feel sorry for that soldier because I know what he had listened to all day long. In fact, that was the mechanism through which ultimately the message of the, of the kingdom of God reached inside of the household of Caesar because the soldiers that were assigned to be chained to the apostle Paul were the guards who took care of Caesar's household. He would get them converted, and can you imagine going out to a, a puddle of water somewhere with your guy that's got the, is chained to you as a soldier and you baptizing him? I would have been tempted to hold him down for a while. But what did the Apostle Paul preach during that time? We know. He knew he just had a certain amount of time to live because Nero had let him go the first time. The second time he knew his head was coming off. He knew that. He knew he just had a certain amount of time. And here's what it says. <coughs> Starting at verse 423 of the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, it says they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And even in large numbers, they came to the place where he was staying, meaning people. And listen to this. And from morning to evening... He explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus Christ from the law of Moses. So if we follow the pattern of, of the preaching of the Apostle Paul, we're going to say, I want 
to make sure that you have a citizenship in God's eternal kingdom so that you can have eternal life. And we want to be able to prove that that's a possibility from preaching the Bible. And only the New Testament is what we can depend on to bring that to fruition. Now, so we know, we know what Jesus did, what the Apostle Paul did. We know what the message was. Because you're not baptized into Christ's community church. You're baptized into Jesus Christ himself as the king of the kingdom of God. Now, we're also told, and i got to streak along here pretty quick to get to really what's important. The Bible teaches us to know what to avoid. And I'm just going to quickly say this. He tells Titus, don't get into stupid arguments to which there are no answers. And there are lots of religious subjects that we'll never resolve. The church is divided since the who knows when, at least since the late 1400s, over predestination and free will. That is never going to be settled because it's arbitrary where you draw the line. Predestination is taught in the Scriptures. Free will is taught in the Scriptures. So where is the line to be drawn? And so the argument is really over where you draw the line. It is a foolish argument. If you believe in predestination, God bless you. Hang in here. I'll support you even if I don't agree with you. If you have a big, strong emphasis on on uh, uh, on free will, God bless you. I'll support you even if I don't agree with you. Because I think I've got it figured out enough to suit me. But I'm not going to impose that on anybody else, and I'll defend their right to differ with me, even though I may make fun of you when you leave. He says the same thing. He tells Timothy, though, he says, don't you get into stupid arguments either and flee youthful lust. Stay away from, from the stuff. And he lists what, those, what the lusts of youth are. Young people are idealistic. If you want to know what's wrong in our political world today, why all these so-called millennials, they're just young folks, why these, these so-called millennials are saying you can have free this and free that and free this and free this, it's because they're, all kids are idealistic. They'll grow out of that, just give them time. Because we were idealistic when we were kids too. And the next generation will be, and so on and so forth. That's why they, I know you laugh about it, but there, there is wisdom that comes with experience. There is. And I never saw many young people yet that didn't think they knew everything. And they couldn't change their own diapers. That's funny, too. That's, go ahead. Just wake up. And then he tells us what we should avoid as followers of Jesus Christ. In the 16th chapter of the book of Romans, he says, avoid troublemakers. Stay away from them. The people who cause decision and dissension in the body, just stay away from them. They're welcome in the, in the church body, but don't hang out with them because they will adversely affect you too because that kind of nonsense is contagious. Then he tells us in 2 Corinthians, and this is an int- and I'm having to hustle here, in 2 Corinthians, where they, the, the, uh, the people in Jerusalem were starving to death, the Christians in Jerusalem were starving to death because 
the Jewish people wouldn't trade with them anymore, wouldn't sell them food. I mean, they were in a heap of trouble. So the Apostle Paul goes, visits the churches that are made up mostly of Gentiles, takes up a whole hunk of money, and, and, and heads back toward uh, Jerusalem with the money. And in, here in 2 Corinthians, in the 8th chapter, in verse 20, he talks about how important it is and, and the degree to which he's going to go to make sure that everybody knows that the money is safe and will get there and it will be used right. It will be used for what it was intended when it gets there. And he spells that out here What in oh, verse 20, I believe it is. And when he tells them, uh, let's see where to start. That's <clears throat> My eyes are... We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer the liberal gift, which meant he had a whole bunch of money with him. And he said, I want some people from the churches who gave it to travel with me to see that the amount that you sent gets there. We here at church, you need to know this. Anytime we handle money here, there has to be three different people present. Three people present when it's counted. Three people present when it's entered into the, on, on the computer. And then that's always compared back to when you get the statement from the bank to make sure that those, and, and that's shared with the uh, trustees of the church. Because money and how you handle the opposite sex are the biggest problems that the church has faced morally since the day one. And so we have it written into our rules that that's the way it has to be written and our insurance gives us a better rate because we do that. You should know that. And then the other thing that goes is in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians, there's a whole bunch of, of time the Apostle Paul spends in the 6th chapter in the, uh, uh, of the uh, 1 Corinthians when he talks about sexual purity. In the 18th verse of the 6th chapter, he simply says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. I had a really talented preacher to show up here one time several years ago and wanted to know if he could worship here. And I said, well, what happened? What are you doing here? He said, I had one too many counseling sessions and one too many hugs. If you want to know why I'm difficult to hug, that's one of the reasons. Because I figure I'm so handsome and sexy, I'd have to fight them off with a stick, you know. So. More humor? I hope. Well, let's conclude this, whole, this discussion of what it means to be a Christian by looking at what the ultimate goal is. The Apostle Paul gives us really good guidance here. He writes to a young preacher named Timothy. Timothy, he ends up putting, him in char he ends up putting Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus, which the Apostle Paul thought was the most critically located in all the Roman Empire. It was at the crossroads of several major highways. And so, 
the Apostle Paul writes to him here in the fourth chapter, <clears throat> in verse 8, well, starting at verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And he uses that to compare to the efforts we made in physical training. We got people here who just, you know, they do all kinds of, you know, I try to show them how exercises should be done and they don't pay any attention to them. It got me to 82 and they're only about 40. You guys really aren't very awake, are you? <laughs> yeah. So he tells them, you know, train yourself. So what, we, what I want to do, and, and Patrick says, well, how do you do that? I'm telling you this. The objective for you and me as believers in Jesus Christ should be to achieve godliness. We have made the serious mistake of saying, just get to church, fill a seat, put some money in the bucket, do it faithfully, da-da-da-da-da. I'm telling you, folks, that's, that's just the beginning. We've, that silly mistake is, so, is, is as dumb as having a newborn baby uh, born to you to a hospital, bring the baby home, set it on the kitchen counter, and say, okay, baby, you're here, now you're on your own. We cannot do people who've been baptized into Christ and expect them to grow if we don't help train them in their faith. That, and I'm convinced now, and I think I've got these guys on board with me. I know Andrew is, and he's already said, these young folks and a couple of three adults, we want to start a class for them and start their training for godliness. Start now teaching. This is what you believe. This is what, you know, here's what it means to be born into the kingdom of God, blah, blah, blah. And, and so that they are in a position to do what Peter says every believer ought to be able to do, to give a reason for the faith that lies within them to anybody that asks. So it requires training to be godly. And, and Peter, it seems to me, is saying that it's a process. A process that we need to buy into. In 2 Peter, in the first chapter of 2 Peter, here's the way it reads. He says, For this very reason, make every effort, this is to new believers, to add to your faith, that's where you start, because without faith it's impossible to please God. Add to that goodness and knowledge, that's why we need to train them, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and godliness, and he indicates that it's only when you receive, reach a level of godliness that you're able to have brotherly love and love. And that's the reason the church has been so divided. We really haven't loved each other like we should have. Here was the Apostle Paul's claim, and I read it and shudder. But this should be the direction that we're going. It wasn't just for the apostles. It's just for you and me. Oops, I'm over time. The clock's fast. Here's what he says here in Philippians 1.21. The apostle Paul is saying this, and he's not bragging. He's just stating facts. He says, For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. What that means in 10 cent store language for northern Kentucky folks, it means this. 
when you see me, the Apostle Paul is saying, you see an individual who has gained through great effort the character qualities of Jesus in my life. And so when you see me, you see Jesus. And he's saying to you and to me, that should be our goal too. When your body lays down here or mine's laying down here in a casket and it's all right for William to bury you as long as he tithes and and your body lays down here and the people line up and walk by you shouldn't our goal in living be when they walk by they don't think of Scott Rawlings they think of a godly man they don't think whoever you are that they think here is a godly person. For them to live was a testimony to Jesus Christ and to die is assurance that they've gone to be with Christ. We need to train ourselves to be godly so that when people see us, they don't just think of us. They say, if there's a man or a woman of God, there they go. And when we do that, we have recommended to the world the kingdom of God and what I'm saying to you is that's exactly what it means to be a Christian. Amen? Lord, dismiss us with a sense of your abiding presence. Help us, O oh God, to encourage each other and to help each other reach that status in life where people will say of us, there are godly people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen? You're free to go. Christ Community Church located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.